So Genesis 8, we're going to do chapter 8 and 9. If I don't talk too much, we'll definitely get through them both. (coughs) So why don't we pray? God, thank you for, for this group of believers and that you've given us this fellowship and these saints to count on and to walk with you with and to talk to and and to befriend and to encourage and to support and to even rebuke when necessary. And Lord, I pray that you bless their friendships and that you strengthen them and that you would use each individual to strengthen others. That this would just be your body in action, Father. And God, we also pray for those who have been in our midst and are presently not walking with you, Lord, that the things that they heard would, your spirit would just tug on their heart with those words and bring them back to your arms. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis 8. So we've been looking at the flood. Noah and the animals went into the ark. And we looked last week at how the ark typifies Jesus Christ. What it meant for Noah to be in the ark is what it means for us to be in Jesus. And there's so many parallels between the ark and Jesus. And it's just how Jesus, Romans 8.1, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just like Noah and his family in the ark, there's no condemnation. The condemning waves can't get to them because the ark takes the beating. The ark lifts them above that. And Jesus has done the same thing for the soul that puts his faith in his death for their sin. They become saved in the great ark of Jesus. And so that's what we looked at last week. Now, we're going to look at the floodwaters subside and life after the flood. So you might recall the illustration of my childhood when my mother would dress my brother and I up in all white. And I can still remember photographs of white overalls so you got white here, white down there, and you got to think, when you're like three, four, five years old, what happens to white clothes? Man, as my brother and I played in the mud and went exploring like Davy Crockett, and I don't know if he was on floor, but you know, uh, Lois and Clark, and just going all around, we would get so much dirt and filth on the white clothes. My mom just had to wash those things every single day. So what happens? What happens when you get a white suit trashed and dirty? Well, like every good mom, you throw it in the laundry room, uh, in the washing machine, and you cleanse the dirt off of the clothes. And they come out crisp, white, clean clothes. And they'll stay that way until they're put on the kid again. And once the kid goes outside in that outfit, we know it is impossible to keep those clothes white. And that is what God used the flood to do. The earth was like the garment and just trashed with sin. And God sends a flood to just destroy the prolific sin that has just multiplied on the earth, the godlessness, and He just cleanses it away. And Noah comes off the ark, a clean, crisp world. But, 
You can't change man's heart with water. So as long as man exists on the globe, there's going to be sin. So Noah instantly sins. And the whole thing starts over. Sin multiplies on the earth once again. And we learn right away, just like the kid, the problem isn't the clothes, the problem is the kid. You have to change the kid's nature to keep the clothing clean. The same thing with the flood. It didn't change man's nature. Man is still a depraved, fallen sinner. So you can clean the sin off of the globe, but as long as man's there, sin is breeding within his heart and it's going to come out. So we learn through the flood this simple lesson. That man does not need a new start. Man needs a new heart. And unless you change his heart, sin is going to come back in. Well, Brandon, was God stupid? Shouldn't he have known that that's the case? Yeah, he knew. And he used the flood to show us, the ones that are stupid, that that's the case. You see, we live in a society that says, new starts, new starts. You can help ghettos by giving them education. Crime will fall. We can end suffering by igniting technology that will alleviate our pain. And we just look at new starts and new technologies and new this and that. And man has missed the point that the world will never create a utopia that we all long for until Jesus comes and changes the actual nature of every single human being. And that's what it is for the Christian. We have a new heart. God comes and, and oh, we sin now and then, but we sin much less than we once did. It's the new heart that Jesus brings. That's what we learn from the flood. Now, in 8 verse 1 you read that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. So the ark's bobbing there. Total time that Noah will be in the ark is 370 plus or more whatever days. A little over a year. He's about at the halfway point right here. The water stopped rising. Just the world is calm blue everywhere with lots of rotting corpse and flesh and debris floating everywhere. You can just imagine the utter silence. I don't know why it's funny to hear the utter silence of a world in this condition. It, it's funny. Um, <laughs> it's, but God remembered Noah. And he sends a wind to blow over the earth. Did we see this in Genesis before? Didn't we see back in chapter 1 a globe full of water and nothing there but just chaotic waters? And then it says there in Genesis 1, verse 2, that God's Spirit hovered, moved over the face of the waters. And what happened after that? Creation began. You began to see dry land appear. It says, verse 2, Genesis 1, 2, The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here in Genesis 8, you see a globe just full of waters and wind hovering over the face of the waters. Now, the Hebrew for spirit and wind are the exact same word. So you could read chapter 8, verse 1, that 
God sent a, His Spirit to blow over the waters. Or you could look at chapter 1 and say He sent His wind to move over the waters. Either way, Noah, Noah, um, Moses is making an intentional point that this is a reflection of Genesis 1. There was chaotic waters. His spirit moved. Creation came. Here it is. Waters. Just an arc bobbing there. His spirit moved and the waters are going to subside and a new earth, a new creation is soon to appear. Now, the reason I belabor this point is because this is a pattern, very interestingly, that God puts throughout the scriptures. His wind or His spirit always creating a new work through the Bible. Here it's the new earth. The new in the new the one we're on now is the newer earth. We're looking for a new earth later. But when Israel was born as a nation, you might recall as they fled from Pharaoh and they ran. And there they are at the edge of the Red Sea and Pharaoh's coming behind them. And what did God do? It says in Exodus fourteen twenty one that he sent a wind to blow against the waters all night long. And the wind parted the waters, and Noah, Moses, last week, wasn't it, I think, Moses all week, now this week I'm saying Noah all week, um, no, Moses went through with the people, and, and when the waters closed on the Egyptians, they became a new nation, they were free, they were their own people waiting to get their own land and establish their own king, they were new creation, because the wind, or the spirit of God moved across the waters. Flash forward from that point all the way up to right after Jesus ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 2 verse 2. The disciples are huddled there in that upper room praying. And what happens? It's the day of Pentecost. And it says there suddenly that a mighty rushing wind flew against the house and suddenly they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The church was born a new creation by the wind or the Spirit of God. And so we see it is God's Spirit that gives life. New life comes from His Spirit. And here is God's Spirit at work, no doubt intentional by Moses to put in here. And in verse 4, we read that in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The 17th day of the month. When you go to Exodus chapter 12, God says to the people, you shall make this month your first month. That was the seventh month. The seventh month here. Exodus 12. Make it the first month now. And on the 14th day of this month, you are to take a lamb and kill it for your families. You guys know the Passover. That's where the angel of death flew over the homes because the blood of the lamb was applied on their doorposts. And the firstborn of the Egyptians died, but the firstborn of the Israelites lived because of the blood of the lamb. Passover. And God said, this Passover is going to be your first month, the 14th day. How ironic, though, that Jesus, when He came on earth, He went to the cross and died on the 14th day of the first month, the actual feast of Passover. There He, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, gave His blood, 
And the angel of death passes over the Christian now. We have eternal life. The 14th day, Jesus died just like a Passover lamb. But what happened three days later? He rose again. The 14th, three days later, the 17th. On the 17th, it says that the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. And our salvation in Jesus Christ comes to rest on the resurrection. Paul said, without the resurrection, our faith means nothing. Our entire faith rests on the resurrection. Now, some of you are sitting here maybe perplexed going, um, if Jesus died on Friday, that's the 14th, Saturday's the 15th, Sunday when he rose is the 16th, so it doesn't add up. Well, this assumption that I'm making is based upon the fact that Jesus did not die on Friday, he died on Thursday. That's a whole other study that we could talk about, but there's evidence that seems Friday, Good Friday, is just tradition. It's more probable that Jesus died on Thursday. So you actually have real three days instead of the Jews. Anyway, some of you were probably adding up going, doesn't make sense. That's why. Basing it upon a Thursday death of Jesus. That the ark came to rest on the exact day that Jesus would, thousands of years ahead of time, rise from the dead. That is so cool. And that is there, the picture of the resurrection, our faith resting on the mountain of the resurrection. Now we move down into verse 6, and we see that at the end of 40 days, so the ark rested, 40 days have passed, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. Ka! Ka! It went to... Last night, I heard a crow calling, or a raven, I don't know what it was, at 11 at night. It was going for 30 minutes. It was weird. Anyways, the cottage reminded me of that. Um, this raven goes out, maybe night, maybe not. And it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then Noah sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove, in contrast to the raven, found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So Noah put out his hand and took her and waited another seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. So the raven goes out it doesn't come back. Why? There is lots of corpses floating and debris all over. And he's, whoo, dead flesh. He's in heaven. Just starts feasting on all the rotting flesh. But raven needs not to come back to the ark. But the dove goes out and finds no place for it to rest. So the dove comes back to the ark. And this, my friends, has for years been taught in the church as a picture of the man of the flesh, the raven, feasts on the flesh, the carnal things, the meat, <laughs> putrefying death, and the man of the spirit, the dove, who goes out into the world and all the desires of the flesh it can find says, not for me. There is no rest for my feet here. And it comes back to the ark. There are those whom profess Christianity, perhaps, heaven forbid, in this room, 
part of the Christian group. They know what to believe. They know what's true. But something within them hasn't changed. They're a raven in our midst. And first chance they get at the flesh, they'll go out into the world and they'll find something for them. And they'll love it. And they'll find turmoil in their heart. I know what I should do, but I know also what I want to do. And like the raven, they go out from us and don't return. 1 John chapter 2. John is addressing his churches about people like this. And he says there in verse 19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you, Christians, you have been anointed by the Holy One, the Holy Spirit, and all have knowledge. So those who have been anointed by God's Holy Spirit, they've had their natures changed. They're like the dove. They go out and know, this is not for me, I want Christ, and they come back. But then there's the ravens who go out, and John says, look, there's those that are in our church, and they've gone out from us, and they don't come back because they weren't ever really of us. And, and there are those professing Christianity, sitting in churches, they know what to believe, maybe they even do accept the facts of truth, but there is no life change. And they, they just go out and, and they don't have any desire to come back to the ark, to come back to Christ. That's the unfortunate fate of so many. That's why we need that Spirit to move in our hearts, the Spirit that gives life. The Spirit changes us from ravens doves. Now, looking at the dove, this is three times that Noah sends the dove out. First time, we read, it went out, found no place, came back. Second time, it goes out, it finds an olive branch, a freshly plucked olive branch, and it brings it back to Noah. Noah says, there's new life out there. Look, a freshly plucked olive branch. It's probably some comical scene if it's us looking at them in the ark. Ooh, look, a leaf! You know, like, ooh. And probably someone from Mars, you know, acting like that. And, and then the third time he sends the dove out, it doesn't come back because it finds a home in the new earth. Three phases and these pictures of believers, the dove. The first phase, it goes out and comes back because the dove realizes there is no home for me except Jesus Christ my ark. That's us justification. We see our sin. We see the carnage in the world, the rotting flesh, the death. And we say, I need to come back to Christ. This is all there is for me. And it's by Him alone that I'm justified. Meaning, my sins removed and it's justified never sin. I come back to Him. My only hope. My only faith. Then, the dove sent out again. It brings back an olive branch. This is us after justification, moving on in sanctification. We begin to bear fruit for the Lord. Sanctification means we become more Christ-like. And we start to bring back new life. New life is coming in our life like a new olive branch. And then the third step, glorification. When we finally arrive at the newer, our new home. The dove goes out, finds its new home. It's in a good place. And we will be too one day. 
So that's the picture of the worldling, the raven, the believer, the dove. And we continue on. Noah finally comes out of the ark after a long process of waiting, 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 waiting. And in verse 20, Noah builds an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Notice what Noah doesn't do. He doesn't come out of the ark, look at the new world and say, we survived. And then turn around to the ark and say, thank you. You saved me, ark, piece of wood. And starts worshipping the boat. (laughs) Now, fortunately you guys find that humorous, and that's a good thing. But there's a serious tone in this in which religion takes us seriously. Mary, you brought Jesus into the world. Mary, we worship you. Oh my gosh, it's that worship song and that worship team at camp. I saw the glory of the Lord. I love them. That band, that song, that's holy. That is worship. I can't worship without that. Religion begins to take the means that are supposed to drive us to the end, which is Jesus, and begins to worship the means rather than actually getting to the ends and worshiping Jesus. Religion just sees, yeah, worship the thing that's supposed to give me Jesus. Worship a wooden cross, or the, what's the thing that the Catholics found, the shroud or something, and people come and worship it and kiss the stones or something. Weird, crazy stuff religion. It touched Jesus' face. We don't have original, original, like the actual ones that the authors penned, letters of the Bible, the actual manuscripts that the authors of the Bible penned. We don't have those. We have some that are very close to them, but we don't have the actual ones. And I think that's the grace of God that we don't have them. You know what would happen if the church got a hold of these manuscripts? The idiots that worship religion would take the manuscripts and... Big worship event, you know, come make a pilgrimage every year and bow down and kiss the manuscript and worship before it and God will hear your prayers because you're closer to the manuscript. But Noah didn't do this. And it's sad that we make such a God out of things that are meant only to drive us to God. Noah just... The ark's never mentioned again, except Peter makes a reference to it later. But Noah doesn't look at the ark, he just leaves, worships God costly sacrifice of one of the precious animals, the few animals that he has. So Noah worships. And then verse 21, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground. I think he's referring to flooding it because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. (laughs) Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done What mercy on God's part. He sees the world as it was, filth, sin. Noah comes out, worships, and God says, I'm not going to wipe them out with water again. Even though evil is in the man's heart and it's all he wants to do. I'm not going to. What mercy our God has. You, you know, you Christian, think about the condition of this world. Think about the total depravity out there. Um, 
Uh, I mean by that, man, it's just completely from head to toe corrupt. It's just out there. Corruption everywhere. The Bible says that anything done without faith is sin. So that an unbeliever who is doing his best things without Christ, without faith, might be doing good deeds, but he is in a state of sin. So everything that he does comes out of a sinful nature, and it is thus sin, no matter what he does. We have a whole world overpopulated with sinners, cinematics everywhere. And God ought to. He would be just and fair and right to just wipe us off of the face of the planet every day. Just... Can't stand these sinners. But it's His mercy that He does not destroy this globe every single day. Think about your sin and the world's sin. Is it not a great mercy that you didn't wake up in hell today? That's what we deserve to the core. This world doesn't deserve a single second. God ought to just... And He will, but He's got a plan to do first. And it's His mercy holding back. Yet, here's what's so strange to me. You have earthquakes in Japan. You have tornadoes in Joplin. Minimal, minuscule damage compared to what man deserves. And man shakes their fist at God and says, Why did you? And I actually heard a reporter on the news say to a pastor, it was an interview, he said, okay, before we get into our deal, let me ask you about Japan. Either your God is all-powerful, but not loving, because he let that happen to Japan, or your God is all-loving, but not all-powerful, because that happened to Japan. Which is it? And I was like, I just like, let me on there, baby, let me on there. This guy knows nothing. And it was just so like, oh, like, that's really the only two options? Are you serious? You can't just see the carnage and the death and the sin in this world and think that it's a great mercy that God hasn't just completely done Japan and Joplin to the entire world yet? And, and you look at His mercy in only allowing one city or one country to experience any sort of badness, and we say, you're not fair. We're way too quick to blame God for our misery than we are to thank Him for His mercy. And that, that shows the hardness of man's heart. Sir. <laughs> I'll tell you after. It, it would take me a couple minutes. <laughs> um, I hate it when I have to say that, but I have to. I have to. Because I have to explain a lot to say that because of who it is. Um, <laughs> sorry, Chris. So now we move into chapter 9, and this is where we get into what's called the Noahic Covenant. I'll make this brief, but it's basically an unconditional covenant, meaning Noah didn't do anything to deserve it. God chose to make this covenant, and it has seven parts to it. I'll fly through these seven. The first is in verse 22, that seasons will be consistent. While earth remains, oh, this is 8.22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, Day and night shall not cease. Number two, it's in 9.1. God tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. And then verse two, it's that the fear of animals will be upon Noah so that Noah can have dominion. It says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon 
every bird of the heavens upon everything that creeps on the ground. Into your hand they are delivered. So there they are. They all fear you, Noah. They're for you to control still. And we still experience that today. Animals have a certain fear of us. Um, some mountain lions up here tend to not to. But generally, if you take out a gun and start firing, they run. <laughs> uh, the fourth part of the covenant is in verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I've given you green plants, I also give you everything. In other words, you can eat meat now. Apparently they couldn't. Now they can. Yay for steak! That was number four. Number five, we see that um, capital punishment is put in place. Look at verse six. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now, whoever sheds blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. Capital punishment, by man it shall be executed. Um, some see that God here is instituting some form of government. He's putting it upon man to get wisdom to build government because he's saying by man, who's man? Man's obviously government. Government's the one that carries out capital punishment. So God's giving us laws and government to perhaps um, retard, meaning slow down, the growth of sin that was so perverse before the flood. Um, what are we on? Number six. Verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God's mercy there never to flood the earth again. Number six. And number seven is verse 13. I have set my bow, the rainbow, in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So that whenever we see the rainbow, remember God's promise. Now, I'm not sure what all your... I didn't check what all the translations say about the rainbow. The ESV says bow. And that's a literal translation because rainbow and the battle bow, like bow and arrow, they're the same word in Hebrew. So what you really, in a sense, have is God saying, that rainbow is like a bow without an arrow. My wrath is just removed. I'm going to show mercy now. I'm not going to wipe the world out until the end of time. Just little things here and there. My mercy is going to be shown. I love that. Because the bow without the arrow also shows a time, a future time, when there's going to be peace. Isaiah 2.4 says, that all the nations shall take their swords and beat them into plowshares. They shall take their hooks and turn them into pruning, take their spears and turn them into pruning hooks. They shall no longer learn war. They shall no longer study war. They shall no longer fight. That's in the new earth to come in the future time. That's when that will happen. And what is, what is Noah here on? A new earth, right? This has total eschatological images. And eschatology is simply the study of the end times. End times in here. It's cool. So I'll show you what some scholars see here. And that's number one. The, the increase in corruption at 2 Timothy 3 says that corruption in the end times is going to increase. Guess what was happening in Noah's time? Corruption was increasing, so God wipes it out. Um, Enoch, however, was walking righteously with God. And it says that Enoch walked with God and was not. Where do you go? We don't know. What was God going to do for the pre-tribulational people? 
the pre-tribulational rapture people, what's God going to do? Well, as iniquity increases, there's going to come a time when God says, my church, they're gone. And then, and then, then the tribulation, the seven year um, pouring out of God's wrath through the Antichrist upon the world is going to come. The flood waters. But Israel is going to be spared. 144,000 of them are going to be sealed and protected through the whole thing, just like Noah and his family in the ark, protected through the whole thing. And then Jesus is going to return on Mount Zion. Uh, actually, the, the Mount of Olives, which is right next to Mount Zion. He's going to come on that hill. The ark rested on the mount. And the new earth is going to be initiated. And there's going to be no more war. Just worldwide peace. This is totally a little mini map of what's to come in the future. So that's what we see there. Now we get to chapter 9 verse 18. And I'm going to summarize for sake of time. um, Because we're actually going to cover this section next week. But what happens is. Noah plants a vineyard. We have no idea how long after the flood. Obviously he's still alive though. He was 500, no 600 when the flood came. So not too long after because he can't live much longer. He plants a vineyard. And he drinks some of the wine from his vineyard. He gets drunk. Passes out naked. (laughs) Typical college scene probably. And... um, Three, he has three sons. What? Ham, Shem, and Japheth. His three sons. Ham, hideous Ham will call him because he's bad. Ham comes in and walks by the tent and maybe the door is open or maybe he's out in the open field, I don't know. He walks by, whoa! Steps back, right? Naked, passed out, drunk, naked. Goes over to his pa- his um brothers. I don't believe what I saw. <laughs> That's so naked. Let's take pictures and put it on Facebook. <laughs> so they they take um pictures. <laughs> or they don't. Um, Ham does. Who's that? <laughs> and Shannon and James go. Oh no, this is our this is the leader of our household. Big deal in the culture and the society. Huge household. And they were like the king of the household. And You can't shame the father like this. So they take a cloak and walk in backwards, not looking, and cover Noah up. Well, when Noah wakes up, he learns, it doesn't tell us how, but he finds out what Ham did. Maybe he saw his Facebook page or something. <laughs> and photos have been tagged of you, Noah. Oh, really? Oh, really? <laughs> Um, posted by Ham. <laughs> um, he, he finds out and Noah begins cursing and swearing. It says that he curses and he curses not Ham but Ham's grandson Canaan. The name of the land Israel is supposed to conquer and subdue. He curses Canaan and all that goes down. But the point of the story for tonight, we'll get into all the rest next week, but the point of it tonight is that Noah sinned, and Ham sinned, and you get chapter 11, <laughs> hordes of people sin at the Tower of Babel. What do we learn? Not to take pictures of 
You should have learned that a long time ago. <laughs> um, if that's all I'm teaching you, heaven, help us. No, the, the flood wipes sin out and it doesn't fix the sin problem. Man needs not a new start, but a new heart. Because we see Noah still has the same heart. Ham still has the same heart. Sin is going to still breed. And so, for us, it's not a matter of, man, these are my sins, I'm aware of them, this is what I want to work on, this is what I want to fix, therefore, new start. My uh, middle of the year resolution. I'm not going to do this ever again. Here's my way to do it, and my list of how-tos, who not to hang out with. And those things are great and all, but those things in themselves, your effort to stop sinning, to make a new start, is not going to make you stop sinning. Never, ever will. As Noah shows. You don't need new starts. You need a new heart. You need the Holy Spirit to come in. It's the Spirit who gives life, John 6, 63. The Spirit to come in and to turn you from a raven who desires the death, flesh, and sin of the world into a dove that wants nothing more than to be with Jesus in the ark. That is the new heart that we need. In theology, we call this regeneration. How does regeneration happen? Basically, what regeneration means is the forming of a new heart. We look at the law and all the Old Testament saints who failed to keep the law, Israel namely, um, messed it up terribly. The Israelites in the Promised Land messed up, got so bad that God had to export them out of the land. What happens? If you don't get a new heart, you can't keep God's command. So what does God say? I'm going to do something. I'm going to give them my spirit and put a new heart in them. It's called the new covenant. It's in Ezekiel 20, 36, verse 26. I'll read it to you. Ezekiel 36, 26. Easy to remember. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, meaning a soft, mobile heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You hear the magnitude of God is promising there. I will give you my spirit who will change your heart so that you will be able to walk in my ways. Apart from that, heaven help you. You can't. We are total depravity. I mean, our whole being is corrupt from the head to the foot and that we cannot without divine help and intervention do any good. We're slaves, as Paul says, to sin. And we need regeneration. We need the Holy Spirit to come and change our hearts. That's why chapter 8, verse 1 talks about the Spirit of God moving over the waters. There's chaos, just water, carnage all over floating around. But the Spirit moves and the waters subside in new earth, new beginning, new creation, a new heart, if you will, is formed. That's the Holy Spirit's job. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help. Quoted by Jesus. John 6, 63. 
This is also what Jesus had to say about it. You guys are familiar with this chapter? It's John 3. He says, Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Check this out. The wind, in the Greek, wind and spirit, same word, just like in Hebrew. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. <laughs> the Holy Spirit gives us the new heart. Titus 3 verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So that's why we see the Spirit moving over the waters, bringing a new creation. That's you. Regeneration. Now, that's regeneration. The Holy Spirit does it. But what does our work of the Spirit rest on? What does regeneration rest on? It rests on the resurrection of Christ. We saw in 8.4 that the ark, then, after the Spirit works, it rests on the mountain. Without the Holy Spirit, we do not have regeneration. Um, because, or without the resurrection, we don't have regeneration. Because it's by the resurrection that the Holy Spirit was able to be sent down into our hearts. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 39, um, that, well, John says that um, Jesus was talking about the Spirit whom those who believed in Jesus were to receive. For as yet, before His ascension, His resurrection, as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When was Jesus glorified? When He rose. John said the Spirit could not have been given until Jesus was glorified. He was glorified when He rose, so that's why He rose, He went up to heaven, the ascension, and then the Holy Spirit came down and gave birth to the church. So, our regeneration rests on the resurrection, wholly and totally. So, we need a new heart, regeneration done by the Holy Spirit. This regeneration rests on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And finally, how do you know that you've been regenerated? How do you know that the Holy Spirit has given you life and that you're saved? There's a test for your regeneration. And that's in verses 6 through 12 of chapter 8. The dove, the regenerated one, the raven, the unregenerated one. What do you desire? Which are you? You find yourself constantly seeking after the flesh or that your heart's been changed and the Holy Spirit has regenerated you and that you crave the things of God. I, I can only assume, based upon what I've experienced um, in talking to students, watching you guys, and not just you guys, just people everywhere, that there is a multitude 
I'm not saying the majority, but there's a good collection of Christians who find it immensely difficult to crave the things of Jesus. They grow up in youth group, maybe even in a Christian home, or they check in and out of Sunday night, and they think like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to get really into this. It's supposed to be a thing. Jesus exists. I believe all that, but I need to just like, I just don't get it though. And it's this constant battle between the world and sin and Jesus and sanctification. And they're constantly going back and forth. And it's just, they constantly have to tell themselves, I'm supposed to be into this. But in, honestly and internally, they just don't get it. It's kind of like, I don't, is it this battle for everyone? Is everyone just super good and they just make the right choices all the time? My answer to that is no. There is, within the church, people who actually crave Jesus, who crave the Bible, who want to pray, who love worship. It's not just a game. It's not something they should choose. They choose it because it completes their joy. And it's not a joke. It's because when the Spirit comes, He regenerates, as we've been talking, He gives you a new heart. Imagine a lamb. It's been geared a certain way to eat what? Grass? Herbs? You can put the most expensive steak in the world, $1,000 plate of steak or something, in front of a lamb, and he is not going to bite. He's not even going to care about it. And you're going, you're crazy. What's wrong with you, dumb, airheaded sheep? Eat! The meat is good. I wish I could have it. He's not ever going to eat that meat. Why? It's not his nature. But, if you're to give that lamb a new nature, put the spirit of a lion inside of the lamb, can you just imagine that? That thing's going to devour that meat. Or put the spirit of Brandon inside that lamb. <laughs> it's going to dig in. You're not going to have to coax that thing. Here, me. Uh, yeah, you don't have to tell me. Get away. This is mine. <laughs> it's all about the nature. And regeneration, God's spirit comes into the heart of a man and literally changes his desires. Where Christ was once odious and the world generous, magnificent, it becomes the other way around. And you yearn for Christ. Like a lamb yearning for a steak. There's a story of Aesop, the Greek philosopher, whoever he was. He's actually not, they didn't know who he was. He's like a collection of people. Anyways, Aesop's fables tells the story of the crow and the swan. And the crow is envious of the swan's beautiful, gorgeous white feathers. I think he's ugly little blackbird eats meat and flesh. A beautiful swan gracefully gliding across the glass waters, barely a stream behind it. And its wings go, oh, I'm so ugly. The crow concluded that the reason the swan was so beautiful, it has to be the water. It's the water that the swan spends so much time in. That's what does it. So the crow decided to leave his perch on the telephone wires and to go down to the lake and to spend some time on the water. Day and night. 
taking a bath, washing himself clean from his black feathers. And Aesop, I think the ending's kind of dumb, but the way it ends is that the, the crow dies because he wants to be, he never goes back to eating meat off the alt, off the telephone wires. He's just busy in the water and never changes into a swan and he dies that way. <laughs> Although that's weird, kind of. That's exactly what happens in the church. There are people who say, that's what I want to be like. And they, they think it's the water. It's going to church. Or it's, it's the way they pray. It's the way they sing. If I, if I read my Bible every day, it's going to happen. It doesn't happen until the Holy Spirit changes you. The crow needed the new nature. It needed to be a different bird. Guys, the Holy Spirit changes us from ravens to doves. We don't have to go swimming in the water. No, I'm a dove. It's a spirit that changes us from ravens to doves. That's the only way to conquer sin in our life. Through Jesus. Who gives us His Spirit. So, Father, give us that new heart let your spirit reign and rule and have absolute authority over us. You have your sons and daughters here. Perhaps, Father, they've been in a place of trying to walk with you in their own flesh and they don't feel it. They feel no power. They don't even know how to do it. God, hear their cry tonight as they look to you in faith. And grant to them your Spirit's power to change them. And God, there's others here who are not even your sons and daughters yet. And perhaps you're moving on their heart even now. Your Spirit is hovering over their waters, moving in their heart. Let this be a new creation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.